As a business leader, you know attracting top talent is just the beginning. Real growth happens when you lead yourself and others well. Creating a company culture that attracts, nurtures, and retains the best of all things. We'll teach you how to make an impact through a holistic leadership approach. Reframing success in leadership. This is the Talent Magnet Institute podcast with your host, Mike Sipple Jr. So welcome. Today we are here in the studio with Dan Hurley, uh, who has been the Director of Leadership for Leadership Cincinnati. The interim CEO was a recent role that you held for the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center. Thank you for serving well there. TV show host, writer for Cincinnati Magazine on Leadership. Currently a local NPR station WVXU host radio show, um, a historian and public educator. Uh, we want to welcome to the Talent Magnet Institute podcast today, our good friend, Dan Hurley. Good to be here. Two of the roles that I just referenced are post-retirement. So some would say you're just rewiring, you're not retiring. But Others thank, would say, I just failed. I just failed, <laughs> failed at retirement. So thank you so much for all that you do, all of your leadership that you do, all the people you've impacted, the stories that you've helped many understand more thoroughly about our great community. Uh, Dan, we'd love to talk about your career path and how that has influenced both you and what you would say about leaders and careers to those listening today. Well, there would be a very difficult time drawing a straight line on my career path. Uh, I don't, uh, there was a point at which I was able to look back and realize some key decisions I made. But those were looking back, not looking forward. And uh, just to give you the, the quick synopsis, I started out as a high school teacher, taught high school for four years, left to go to graduate school in colonial revolutionary history at College of William and Mary because I wanted to be a better historian. I presumed I would go on to be a university professor. Uh, graduate school cured me of that. I, I didn't want to spend my life writing books that only 500 people uh, pretended they read and only 200 actually read. And uh, so I went back when I finished graduate school, I went back and taught high school for two years. But what I increasingly became aware of that if you want to be a historian, you have to work with people who have experience because it's adults who bring experience to the table and experience means they have some sense of time, some sense of change. And so I get, began to think about, I needed to move into adult education. And that jumped me, after six years of high school teaching, uh, that jumped me into uh, being the education director for the Cincinnati Historical Society. I had no idea what that was. Um, and fortunately, it was such a small organization that they really didn't know what that was either. They thought they knew, but they didn't. And we ended up creating all kinds of new things. So ended up working with commercial television. Uh, my boss came to me one day and said, I just signed a contract. You're going to produce a half-hour documentary for Channel 9, which it was at that time the CBS, now the ABC affiliate in Cincinnati. I said, well, it would have been nice if you'd asked me before you did that. I said, I don't know anything about TV. And he said, don't worry about it. They'll, they'll figure that out. Well... I became totally fascinated and have been involved with television ever since. And, um, but 
I worked for the Historical Society. We created uh, models of adult education that were pretty, uh, pretty daring, and we kept pushing those and pushing those. I wrote my first book while I was there, uh, did all kinds of things, <clears throat> but then became convinced that that wasn't the right place for me for a whole bunch of reasons. And, you know, the old phrase that sometimes you don't leave a job, you leave a boss. And I just decided it was time for me to move on. I went on to Xavier University in uh, development work, which seems like a total jag, but it was, in my mind, if I wanted to be a museum director someday, need to new learn how to do development. And then when I was there, when I was at Xavier University in development, I worked a lot with the business school that was setting up their entrepreneurial center, helped them raise money. And I basically came to the insight, these guys aren't any smarter than I am. And um, if they can set up businesses, so can I. So I founded my own business, public history consulting firm, just on the front edge of Cincinnati celebrating its bicentennial. And I figured, well, at least for a year I can find work, and then I'll figure out what I'm going to do. And that went on for 20 years. And I uh, managed my own business called Applied History Associates. It still exists. It's a front operation. There were never any associates. And uh, I subcontracted when I was doing video. I had videographers and editors. When I was doing a book, I had designers and editors and publishers. Uh, I was doing an exhibit. I had a different kind of designers. So I did that. Then I got to the point where I knew I could do lots of things. But I really thought what I wanted to do was to see if I could lead a staff. So I was convinced by the Cincinnati Museum Center to come and be the assistant vice president for history and research and to lead four departments. And I very much enjoyed that. But again, I wasn't comfortable with the leadership of the entire organization. And I, the job for Leadership Cincinnati opened up. And I grabbed it. And it was the best job I ever had. So, but at some point, I looked back on my career and I said, what was really important were two things. One, uh, I'm a historian. I, I see the world as a historian. But what I do is I'm a teacher. How, not necessarily in the classroom. Secondly, I had made this key decision in 1979 at the end of teaching high school the second time that I wanted to work with adults and that everything from that point has flowed from there, whether it was 38 years in television, whether it was writing books, designing exhibits, whatever. Everything has flowed from that. And um, that's what I do. And then in terms of whatever the job is at the moment, it is where my gut tells me. I, I, I believe in planning for institutions, but I don't live my life that way. I never planned my career, and even down to retirement. I tried to retire two years ago. I turned 70 and uh, had things I wanted to do, like I have two books to finish writing. Uh, but people came to me, asked me to be the interim president of the Freedom Center. I said yes to that because I believe in the organization. I helped found it. I was the original managing director. Um, and then as that was ending, WVXU, the NPR station in town, came and said, 
we're in a transition. Can you step into that? Yeah, I can do that. So I, I, you, you have to follow your gut about the specific job, but, but you need to get clarified on what it is that you want to do. Mm-hmm. And all of these opportunities that have come your path have aligned to your goals, missions, and why you do what you do. Well, maybe, largely, but you know, when you're running your own business, um, you're out there selling a lot. And when you're a public historian and you're trying to convince people that they need your services, there isn't every, every project I bought into or somebody bought me into okay. was perfectly aligned. But, you know, you got to also put two kids through college and you, you do what you need to do. Yeah, yeah. So, Dan, share with us a little bit about an experience. You know, most communities around the country, larger communities, have leadership classes where they bring in leaders from all walks of life and all types of experiences into a group. What have you learned being having experienced so many leadership classes of great, diverse, and inclusive populations? What's that taught you? Well, I, what it teaches me is that, and, and what, let me make clear, Leadership Cincinnati is not primarily about how to teach people to be successful in their careers. We are working with people who are already successful in their careers. They CEOs, COOs, CFOs, managing partners. Um, our goal was to help people who are already successful gain the knowledge, some skills, and the confidence to step out into the public arena and take leadership roles in the community, at least larger than they are at the time they enter. And so there's a lot of different ways that plays out. And I, you know, over eight classes of 54 people, plus I also ran leadership action, uh, there, there were a lot of different styles I saw. But uh, certain things, I think, are, are clear. One is that a person who's, who emerges as a lead, leader has to be somebody who has some vision of what can be better. They, they see how they can improve something, whether it's a business or something, some aspect of the community. They're not people who acclimate, who settle in, who just want to know what the job description is. They're probably not people who live well with job descriptions. Secondly, they're people, really good leaders, are people who really know how to listen and respect the people that they work with. Um, I had an experience as the interim president of the Freedom Center. When I got there, I systematically talked to everybody. I gave everybody 45 minutes to an hour to come in, talk to me, tell me their story, why they're there. And as time, as we went through that, people started saying to me, you know, nobody's ever asked me this question before. I've never talked to the president. I've never talked to the person who was in that office. So what do you mean? How can I be, how can I be the leader of an organization if I don't know who I'm working with and what makes them tick and what makes, what's important to them? So you have to be a really good listener. And I think the other thing is that generally speaking, you have to be patient. Um, we don't pay enough attention to the value of patience. And the, the, the example I, that sticks out for me is the former mayor of Louisville, Kentucky, 
um, who had early in his career driven the idea that the county and the city ought to merge. And the voters voted that down by a small margin. They went back the very next year, tried to get it passed. It actually lost by a little bit more, but still a small margin. Rather than keep beating that drum, what he did was he formed what he called a compact with the county that they came to certain agreements and that any new business that came to either the county or the city, it didn't make any difference where it was, that the city would get 60% of the new tax revenue and the county would get 40%. And they lived with that for 11 years. They learned to work together. They, at the same time, talked in the community about what the values were. And 11 years later, they went back and uh, passed that levy. And so patience, action, listening, I think are really key elements of, of some of the things that I saw from really good leaders, people that I really respected. Mm, that's outstanding. That's outstanding. We'll make sure we include those three priorities in our show notes as well so people can take that and really um, chew on that, per se, from a leadership standpoint. Do you? Um, we talked about the impact of public leadership, that Leadership Cincinnati was trying to get individuals to come into some type of public leadership role, whether that's formal or, in many cases, serving on committees and boards and serving well in that way. I know you have a passion for public leadership. So where you know, can you talk with us, de- describe that, define that for those listening and um, encourage you know, them what they might be able to do differently tomorrow? Well, it all goes back to Aristotle, which so much does, or to Plato, but in this case, Aristotle, who wrote in the politics that you cannot be fully human until you've stepped into the public arena, the public space. And I really believe that, that you can't just leave a private life, that if you're going to be fully human, you're going to test out who you are. Um, You're going to find out who you are. You have to take risk. You have to take responsibility. And uh, that's difficult at times. Now, there's a lot of ways of doing that. You can do it and you can serve on boards that are relatively safe and you but you can really risk a lot. I have a great deal. A lot of people are down on politicians. I've spent my life either working for politicians, working with politicians, interviewing politicians. And I don't want to say they're not flawed. We're all flawed. Um, But I see, by and large, a lot of people, no matter what the political party, I think this is really obvious on the local level, who are there because they want to help their community. And they're willing to stick their necks out. And they're willing to make the hard decisions. And, you know, there's a there's a, something that gets said a lot. You know, if we could just run government like we run a business. Well, that's the whole point. Governments aren't businesses. Businesses make decisions, they execute, and they tell people what to do. Now, that's oversimplifying, I know. But uh, in the public arena, you're not allowed to do that. First off, by law, you know, almost all your meetings are in public. So you can't sort of figure it out and then go in and tell people what's going to happen. And secondly, there's so many forces and so many people who have different experiences and different backgrounds 
who have a legitimate right about what happens next that have to be listened to. So the skills in business don't transfer necessarily to the skills in at least elected political life. I have worked for politicians who were idealistic and uh, pure and never won a thing. That's how I sort of got involved in politics back in 1968 with Gene McCarthy and Mo Udall. And, you know, I worked for a lot of people who lost a lot of elections. You know, and then I worked for politicians who won elections. And sometimes I respected them and sometimes I didn't. I mean, I worked for a politician who, from a distance, I thought he had principles. He got on the inside. And it was all about where's the next vote. And, you know, I stopped. I was a volunteer on his campaign. I got hired. It was kind of a dream opportunity. He was a congressman. And um, I was coming back from a meeting even before he got uh, it, it was sworn in into Congress. I had prepped him for a meeting. We went to this meeting, and there was a discussion about, this is back in 1976, national health care. And uh, it had been raised in the meeting, and I raised it with him. And I said, well, what do you think about that? He said, how many votes can you get me for that? I said, but, you know, there's other things at stake here. You've just been elected. This is your opportunity to think big. How many votes can you get for me, Dan? And at that moment, I knew I was finished. I knew I would resign. I, I, before he sworn in, I found another job. I said, I'm not going to do this. And, um, you know, there's got to be some idealism there. So elected politicians, um, you know, I interview, you know, over the years, 22 years of doing Newsmakers, now doing Cincinnati Edition, I interview politicians day in and day out practically. And my only principle is I want people with different experiences, different backgrounds to sit down together and talk. I want to model what good conversation can be. The only thing I insist on is they don't lie to my face when they know I'm lying. I know I'm lying. And if that happens, they're just never back on the show. And there are people who have never been back on the right, show. Right, right. Absolutely. You know? I mean, you, don't, you just don't do that. I mean, everybody has to shade. You know, they give you the, the answer that sort of avoids the direct question. The political I understand answer. That. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I understand that. That's part of the game. It's my job to ask the question again and try to get a better answer. But the person who lies to me, that's it. I'm done. Not back on. Mm-hmm. It's a great lesson in leadership. Yeah. So you have so many people that come into um, a leadership class from the community, from public roles, from um, for-profit businesses. Can you share with, you know, and, and some of those, you know, what I always try to think about is we need more middle market business leaders to step outside and to connect with the outside community. Mm-hmm. We need more entrepreneurs to get involved with leadership opportunities such as these. Um, what can you encourage those? Let's say there's a middle market business owner listening today who's never got involved in things in the outside world, except for maybe one nonprofit that their family has supported for decades. What could you share with that listener? Well, let, let me tell a story. Um, it's probably my third leadership Cincinnati class. Uh, and there was someone who was a vice president of a bank. Of course, everybody at banks are vice president. So it was a vice president of the bank. And uh, 
we were about two-thirds of the way through the, the program. We were in April. It started in September. And we were doing that day, we were doing something on not-for-profit not social services. And we went, we had sent people out. They had some experiences in the morning, came back, debriefed. And we were about to break for lunch. And just before we broke for lunch, Tim said, stop. Everybody stop. Sit down. I have something to say. And he said, when I got the class list and saw not-for-profit people on the class list, he thought, what a shame. I'm not going to get any business from them, and I'm not going to learn anything from them. And he said, I want to tell you, I have completely changed my view. And it has. He has become very involved in the community. He heads up a couple of boards, but he also doesn't just head them up and give money. He does work. He's involved with the work of the organizations that he commits to. And I think ultimately we change not by talking about it, but by actually experiencing differences. And that's why the magic of Leadership Cincinnati is that you bring people together from across the spectrum that most of those people would never meet each other otherwise. I loved it every time at the beginning, the first class we had, you'd ask people, well, how many, look around the room, 54 people, how many people in here know 10 people? Occasionally you had some super connector who knew 10 people. Rare, really rare. How many knew five? You'd have a couple people who knew five. How many people who knew two, one, or zero? Almost everybody. And, you know, I'd remind people that all these people in the class, I said, you're all very successful in your careers. And you probably think you already know all the people you need to know. But here's all these people in this room that you didn't even know existed and had these different experiences of what the very same community that you live in. And spending a year together and constantly pushing all of those people out into new experiences, that's what changes people. It's actual experience. It's not just reading about it. It's not just watching a TV show. It, it is going out and meeting people who aren't like you. And that's what changes you. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really a great experience to talk to someone who has experienced any leadership program. You know, I was just interacting with a leader in Houston a few weeks ago that was going through leadership Houston. Mm -hmm. And, um, and this, the experiences that leader was having are similar to myself when I went through leadership, Northern Kentucky, to so many leaders who have gone through leadership, Cincinnati, that you walk in like you just referenced, I walked in thinking in the business that I'm in, I'm going to know more than half of the room and probably knew six or seven, yeah. right? And and uh, happened to have had an experience where one of my high school buddies, he and I hadn't seen each other s since high school and we're in that class together and he's in a different role and I'm, you know, we're both in our, where we are in our careers, but, it, but walking through life experiences, getting to know people, it's a great lesson of leadership. How do you bring that back into your own court, in your own environments that you're in to really get to know people in a very yeah, authentic, the real the environments way. environments we're in, um, how often do we not talk to the people that we interact with every day? Right. And we don't really know what their story is um, because we don't, we talk about the business. We don't talk about them. You know, don't ask the, the questions. Mm -hmm. So share with me, you have some, even some recent experiences of the role interim, right? So, <laughs> you know, we have, 
you know, organizations and people step into those interim roles. We see them, we see them quite often, you know, where you have a CEO who steps out and the uh, board chair comes in as the interim CEO or a, a head of sales steps out and the head of marketing or CFO takes that interim title or an executive director retires early or a CEO's transitioned out by a board. Walk us through the experiences of sitting in and living in an interim role. Well, it's been really interesting this past year as the interim president of the Freedom Center. reason I ex- accepted the position was as I think I referenced earlier, back in 1994, I was hired as the original project manager to put the organization together, not as a historian, but as an organizational person. So I worked for two and a half years doing that, getting it to the stage, developing the the plan, the vision, um, to the point where Procter & Gamble felt excited enough about the prospects of this new institution to send over one of their senior VPs uh, to be the first CEO of the organization. And, and then I rolled off and became part of the exhibit planning team and spent another year and a half. So I spent really four years in the early years of the organization. So I really cared about the organization. I believe in the organization. And, um, so they came to me. I had also, we're now a merged organization with the Museum Center. And I had been an assistant vice president of the Museum Center. So I was a known quantity to them. And I think they came to me and said, you know, what do you think about this? And it wasn't really much of a question for me. It was a yes. Um, I believe that the health of the Nas- National Underground Railroad Freedom Center is absolutely critical to the future of this community. And that organization is more important today than the day its doors opened in 2004. We started a decade before that, before they actually got it built. So it was, it was not a question of whether I would take the position once it was offered. What I didn't understand, because I had never been an interim before, was how tenuous that position was. Now, first off, you don't know how long it's going to last. It was supposed to be six months. That's what we all thought. They were going to be out there searching. I thought they were already searching. Um, that didn't turn out to be true. Uh, and it ended up being a year. Now, if I had known I had 12 months, slightly more than 12 months, I might have done things differently. But if I, when I thought, well, I only got six months, my job is, one, to try to stabilize the situation. Two, not make any commitments that my successor is going to be tied to, some new initiative that ties their hands and makes them committed to something. That doesn't make any sense. I'm also, I made it very clear to the people who were hiring me, I'm not, I'm not the person that you want to hire if you, what you expect is somebody to come in and clean house. That's not what I'm going to do. My approach is let's give people a chance. Let's see if we can get them to grow. We made some personnel changes because uh, those were necessary. Uh, but you know, you have to do it in an orderly way and you have to keep the... And the other problem, if somebody does move on, it's very difficult to hire anybody. Who wants to come in and take a position that's key? Now, lower level frontline positions, you can hire those people. But if you got a VP level person, who wants to take that position and get hired by the interim? 
You don't know if he's going to be there very long and what's going to happen when the real person comes. So it's very, it's very difficult to, you're constrained as to what you can do. Um, and it, it very quickly became clear to me that I really had two roles. One, uh, bolstering the staff and saying, we're going to get through this and we can still do really creative work. And two, working with the larger organization, as I mentioned, this was a merged organization, to try to improve the internal structures and systems that existed so that whoever followed me didn't have to deal with some of the craziness that existed. But it, it was a real challenge. Now, I'm in an interim position now as the host of this daily show on the local NPR station, but that's different. I'm just doing it. I, I'm not managing it. I'm not responsible for the budget. I'm not responsible for fundraising. I'm just doing the job. That's fine. They'll find somebody. I'll go away. And um, it'll be, that I understand how to do. But when you are in one of those top positions and you're an interim, in an interim position, it's a real delicate balancing act. And I've come to much greater respect for people who step into those roles. Mm. That's great. Great perspective. And what would you give there a couple, if somebody's walking in or being asked to do a interim role, what would you recommend they ask up front to get further clarity on or further understanding to help them be successful? Well, I think you really want to understand as much as possible um, who makes the decisions. Mm. Uh, who are you really answering to? Uh, and, uh, you know, a merged organization, that's not instantly clear. Uh, we had two boards inside the same organization. Well, the one board really knew that the other board had the final say. But so how do you how do you grow the board and convince it that they need to stay engaged, that they need to help get the key things done that boards do? Help raise money. Um, so who's really in charge? Who are you answering to? What's really the financial situation? And it's the same thing as asking if you were going to take any job. Um, what, um, what are you facing? If you've only got six to 12 months and you don't quite know how many, uh, you don't have much maneuverability. If you're walking into a big cash problem, you don't have time to figure out the creative way to deal with it. You, there's going to only be hard ways of dealing with that. So, you know, I think you really need to ask a lot of questions about that. I think there's a, a lot of, I think you have to ask some questions about, you know, do I, do you really have my back? You know, the board chair, the, uh, the person that you're, maybe on a staff level you're answering to, you have my back because there's going to be some tough decisions here. And there's going to be people who are being answering to me that aren't going to want to hear them because I'm a temporary guy. So you going to back me? And so you got to play out some scenarios, I think. So Dan, I had the opportunity um, several years ago to meet your wife, Karen, who was an executive at 4C for Children. And I know that near and dear to both of your hearts is early childhood education, helping our community stand up 
services, support, engagement on early childhood education. Um, so can we go into a little bit about early childhood education as well as a couple other key topics that you feel are critically important for this community and I would argue every community in the country to be winning in? Well, there's nothing um, more important or in many ways more intriguing than early childhood because the people you're dealing with are some of the cutest people on, on the planet, right? My five-year-old granddaughter is, of course, the most brilliant, interesting, and cutest person alive. And actually, you feel about grandparent, grandchildren in a way you don't have time when you're a parent. You know, you're just sort of overwhelmed. But by the time you're a grandparent, you can really enjoy it. It's like those kids were just ways of getting to grandparents. They're necessary evils. Um, but the... Um, Early childhood is this fascinating area that has really opened up. I mean, we now understand, you know, that 80% or whatever the exact percentage is of brain development occurs by the time you're six. I mean, and you can see that happening in children. You can see it happening in very young children. One day they're not doing it, and the next day they are, and it's how did that happen? And then you, you know, as they get older and you just see them making connections, you know, there's this big thing about, you know, what's your child's first three-word sentence, complete sentence? Well, my granddaughter had her first three-word sentence in my car as I was driving her to preschool. Look, Papa, truck. There you go. Got a whole sentence. That's an amazing moment. So this is, this, if you can get children started right, uh, then lots of things flow very comfortably from that. So in this community in Cincinnati, the preschool promise, which did pass on the ballot, um, what, 14 months ago, uh, is really important. And high quality preschool, high quality early education not in that formal classroom sense, but really recognizes that the way children learn, but actually the way all of us learn, is by play. It's by doing things. It's not by reading, really. I mean, it's, yeah, that's ultimately, it's become sort of the adult substitute for play. But play is absolutely critical. And when people go to an early childhood setting uh, some sort of room where there are children, it's really what's the quality of play that's going on? And how are the kids interacting? And what are they learning? And it is, it's amazing to me. So yes, this is really important. We have got to find ways that because of the expense of early childhood for infant care, infant care is more expensive than sending a child to a public college. And, you know, it's thirteen dollars to $15,000 a year in a five-star, uh, high-quality situation. You have got, we have got to find ways to help uh, moderate-income people afford that for a whole bunch of reasons, for the child's sake, but for the family's sake, so that they can, in, in a society where we basically expect both parents to work, we need to have good situations where parents can feel good about where they 
or, or their children are during the day. So this is absolutely essential. It's just absolutely critical. I, I, I can't think of many things that are more important. And uh, you were mentioning my wife. You know, she came to this late. I mean, her, she spent most of her career in uh, her, her academic background is in theology and religious publication. So religious communications, religious publication. She came to this in the last decade of her career and just opened up whole new worlds. And it's another thing, you know, I, I took the job at Leadership Cincinnati when I was 63, or 62, pardon me, as an act of defiance. My father died at 61. My grandfather died at 62, uh, heart attacks. So I took the job at 62 as like, I'm not finished. I got one more good move in me. And my wife sort of took her job, not because it, she felt a clock was ticking, but there was, a, there was still another... There was still another chapter to be written. And uh, when I turned 63, took all of my coworkers out to lunch and said, I hadn't told my boss that the reason, one of the motivations for taking the job was I wanted to prove I could live longer than my father and grandfather. So, um, you know, it's the, the early childhood thing is something that bubbled up in leadership Cincinnati, classes 36 and 37. And they put that on the community agenda. I'm very proud of that. There's a lot of things we put on the community agenda. But that came directly out of Leadership Cincinnati. And when you saw that vote come in last year, two, two Novembers ago, it was really important. It's transformative. Yeah, that's incredible. And, and it's now being led by a woman in this community by the name of Shiloh Turner, who was in class 36. Yeah. She was part of helping to create that. I mm. just saw her this morning. Mm. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. It's an incredible story. The leadership of <clears throat> the, in this case, Success by Six, um, Pre-K Works is an initiative in Northern Kentucky that's kind of the sister organization to Preschool Promise and something that our firm's deeply involved and committed to. And uh, thank you for being a critical part of the conversation and creating a safe place where people could have the important conversations that create and birth the idea that can lead to such a powerful initiative. Well, I think now in, in, on the Cincinnati side of the river, we're facing a corollary of this, and that is the discussion about the impact of childhood poverty, which isn't really about childhood poverty. It's about family poverty and children being caught up in it. I mean, sometimes when they talk about childhood poverty, it sounds like, well, we just have to find a way to get the kids out working by the time they're, you know, eight, um, get rid of those child labor laws. Um, that's not what it's about. It's we've got to change the economic structure so that families can build real lives for themselves. And that will change children's lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Systems change can be some of the most complicated, huh. but most necessary. Yep. Yeah. So the angle of historian, um, you know, I'm certain you put through, just like all of us, with based on different experiences, a different filter of content and things that are happening. I remember taking my first Cincinnati Underground Railroad subway tour with led by Dan Hurley and the uh, emotions that I personally went through of like, why couldn't they just have finished something like this, right? We wouldn't be the next mega metropolis. Um, but you've seen, you've seen history. And you've seen history repeat itself. 
um, what what lens from a historian view, historical view, could the listeners put on things as they look at topics and conversation? What can we learn from a historian? Well, uh, first off, I don't believe history does repeat itself. Uh, I, I believe the context is constantly changing and evolving. Now, human nature doesn't move as fast as certain other things. So there's, uh, there is a constant on some level. But um, I, the importance of history, if you, under, if, you, if you understand history as asking the question of what is the significance of past human experience you know, in a different time and in a different place, if you ask that question about significance, it's not about chronology. So many people, history is the worst taught subject in high schools and actually in lots of college situations. You know, Henry Ford said history is, his experience of history was just one damn thing after another. And people get bored and it's like, what's the point of this? And it's like, until you break through that and you say, no, it's not about chronology. It's not about remembering what happened exactly in the sequence and what the date was and all of that. You can go look that up. The question is, what's it mean? So, you know, I've been on two trips in the last month. You know, we just went to the National Civil Rights Museum at the Lorraine Hotel in Memphis 50 years ago. It was on the, it was on the balcony of that hotel that the Reverend Martin Luther King was shot and killed. That was my senior year in college. I remember exactly where I was when I heard the news that he had been shot. Um, standing in front of Lorraine, going through the National Civil Rights Museum, it's a really emotional experience. And then the, the Jackson, the, the museum in Jackson, Mississippi, the brand new C Mississippi Civil Rights Museum, is incredible. It's a wonderful uh, experience. And, but history isn't about chronology. It's about asking the question of what did it mean? So, for example, in that National Civil Rights Museum, even though that was my era and I was involved in civil rights marches and all of that kind of stuff, you go back and you realize all these people were doing all these different things. Soci you're talking about institutional change. We got institutional change because people at every level, from Thurgood Marshall on the Supreme Court to some college students sitting in at a segregated lunch counter, people were involved at every level, pushing change in different ways, but it all sort of came together at a, in a critical mass at a critical moment. And that is really important because it's ultimately history is historians are asking the questions they can understand, not about the past. They're really asking questions about the present because we can, you know, I'm asking the question about this past data based on what concerns me right now. Everybody says, oh, revisionist history. History is nothing if not revisionist. It is constantly revisionist. And because the current present changes. And the questions I'm able to ask of past experience and past human beings is different than what's going to be asked 50 years from now. I can't imagine those questions. I can't ask those questions. But it's asking the question about significance so that I can help understand what to do next. And it's not just about famous people. 
you know, one of, one of my favorite book titles is Ordinary People in Everyday Times, because that's where most of us live. And you were talking about my wife. My wife's a, a theologian by training. She had a professor in graduate school by the name of John Donne, and he had this image that you could only become fully human. We, we should think of humanity all standing on a circle, looking in at the center. That's reality. And the way you could become fully human is to pass from one person's shoes and eyes to another. And if you could go all the way around that circle and see reality from everybody who's alive, you could become fully human. In my mind, that's all history is. You just expand the circle, not only to people who are alive, but people who have been alive. And you try to see the world, if only for a moment, through somebody else's eyes who lived at a very different place in a very different moment. Uh, I'm part of a, um, a book discussion club that started this year at the Mercantile Library. It's going to go for seven years. We're reading a biography of every president in order. Just can't wait till I get to Millard Fillmore. Um, but <clears throat> I see, we just had this discussion on Wednesday night about John Adams. And I see people, really smart people, but they're struggling with, well, why didn't John Adams ask the question we have today? He couldn't have asked that question. You know, writing the sentence that Thomas Jefferson wrote, all men are created equal, nobody had ever written that sentence before. Now, the fact was he couldn't imagine that that sentence included women or people of African descent, but that was still a revolutionary sentence. And you can see the contradictions, but you have to also appreciate that no human being had ever been able to write that sentence before and, and would have seemed absurd even a year before that. So it's seeing the world just through another person's eyes. That's what history is really about. And that's what's enriching. That's very powerful. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Sure. Um, so let's provide, if you were to... Um, having the conversation with the listeners today, what's one thing that you'd like for the listeners to take away from this dialogue? What do you think could help change either their perspective of life or pursuit of what's next? Well, <clears throat> this is really out of my own experience and therefore it's that important or unimportant, but, and it sort of harkens back to something I was saying earlier. I really think that when you're talking about building a career, Ultimately, you got to trust your gut. You know, life doesn't go in straight lines and opportunities present themselves. And at some level, when you're faced with a new opportunity, it either feels right or it doesn't. And I've followed opportunities that have presented and I've walked away from opportunities that have presented themselves. And there's, you know, so often I think, and maybe this is more true in a larger corporate environment. I mean, I've worked in the for-profit side with a commercial television station for 38 years. So it's not that I don't know that world, but I haven't been on the career path in that world. So if you're in a corporate environment where you measure success by your ability to move through that funnel, that constantly narrowing funnel, well, that's one thing, but that's not the world I've lived in. And um, it's how do, you, how do you come to learn to trust your gut? 
And that's not ultimately it's a lonely decision, but all but it really it's by talking to a lot of people. I just had breakfast this morning with somebody who has been a friend for 25 years. And the joke between us, neither of us have ever made a career move without talking to each other. Hmm. Never. And, you know, and that doesn't just mean, what do you think about this job? It means all the little things that go into it that maybe take a year to, to uh, develop. So I think there's, we have to give ourselves permission. I think of somebody like um, Steve Driehaus who was on a political path. He was a state legislature. He got elected to Congress in 2008 uh, when Obama swept into office. He was a critical vote to pass the Affordable Care Act, which then cost him his job. He, he got defeated the next, the next election. And what's he do? Well, right out of college, he had been a Peace Corps volunteer. And the Peace Corps asks him if he wants to be an administrator. He picks up his family and moves to Southern Africa to, uh, for four years to oversee the Peace Corps operation in, in that area. And, you know, he would much have preferred getting elected a second time, but that's not the way his life unfolded. And he really found a way to make that work in a way that his children will never forget. I mean, they've now been shaped differently than they would have in, in any other situation. So how do the, these things just, I can remember people saying to me when I was at the old historical society 40 years ago, saying, oh, you've done all this stuff. You can't ever leave here. No, I learned a long time ago. Institutions will go on. They'll be different. They could, might be better. They might be worse. They might just be different. But ultimately, the individual has to decide, you know, what what takes them to the next level and helps them fulfill the obligations they have to the people who really count their family. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. Dan, thank you so much for the conversation today. Thank you for the time. Thank you for your deep care for people and leading well and serving well and really a visionary for what our community has become. And uh, thank you for all of the seeing your fingerprints and your impact on people's lives as we have conversation that have crossed your path and have gotten to know you, as well as taking a step back and looking at the landscape of our community and seeing the impact that you've had. Thank you so much for all that you do and for joining us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's been fun, Mike. Do you want to make sure you're getting the most out of your current and your prospective talent? Go to talentmagnetinstitutepodcast.com slash talent and find out the 10 questions you should be asking yourself to stay ahead of the game. The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is made possible by Janelle Spence and Christine Lewis of Centennial, Josh Chappelle and Adam Smith of Sound Press, produced by Chris Medine of New Fidelity Studios and Audra Casino and Megan Doherty of One Stone Creative. Music written by DJ Corbett and Chris Medine. And myself, your host, Mike Sipple Jr. We are recorded in Greater Cincinnati, Ohio. We're supported by our listeners from all around the world. The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is part of the Talent Magnet Institute and Centennial. You can reach me on Twitter or LinkedIn at Mike Sipple Jr. Find us in your favorite podcast app, or you can visit us online at talentmagnetinstitutepodcast.com to subscribe, leave a review, and share with a colleague. Thank you for joining us on the journey of developing leaders to succeed in relationships, work, community, and life, reframing success in leadership.